You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So if you're involved with human resources, labor relations, uh, labor attorney, or even a union official, you're probably already familiar with this story. And that is the attempt by the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, to ban so-called captive audience meetings. Those are meetings in which an employer meets with his or her employees on company time to provide information as well as the risks and ramifications of unionization during union organizing campaigns. And it's a practice that's been around for decades. And so in to give those of you not familiar with this a little bit of background, in early April, the National Labor Relations Board GC, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued a memo indicating that she was going to ask the NLRB to find that, quote, mandatory meetings in which employees are forced to listen to employer speech concerning the exercise of their statutory labor rights, including captive audience meetings, a violation of the National Labor Relations Act, end quote. And that's from the press release that the NLRB issued, I believe it was back on April 7th. In any case, less than a week later, GC Abruzzo filed a brief in a case called CMEX in which she was seeking the NLRB to ban captive audience meetings, eliminate the ability of employers to insist on secret ballot elections, which goes to her, quote, Joy Silk Doctrine, in which she's trying to do backdoor card check, uh, going back to a 1949 case called Joy Silk. We've done a couple episodes on that, but, and we'll do another one. And then also to restrict an employer's right to inform employees about how the employer-employee relationship may change with union representation. Now, that last part is very weird because as a former union rep, the employer-employee relationship does change. But that's, again, different topic for a different day. In any case, so to fast forward, this was back in April, um, there's been a lot of ink written about it, about this banning of so-called captive audience meetings, both on the union side as well as the employer side. So fast forward to mid-July, the Texas Policy Foundation's litigation center, the Center for the American Future, sued the National Labor Relations Board for, quote, violating the First Amendment in its unlawful attempt to silence employer speech, end quote. The Center for the American Future is part of the Texas Public Public Policy Foundation that advances Tenth Amendment principles through opposition to, according to their website, federal abuse in the areas of environmental, private property, and business autonomy rights. And in that, the center launches legal challenges to government overreach at the administrative, district, and appellate court levels and represents clients whose lives and liberty are threatened by federal government action in defiance of the Constitution. So that's part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And so when they launched this lawsuit or filed this lawsuit, I wanted to reach out to them and just kind of see what it was all about. So I reached out and was able to connect with Matt Miller. 
and he's a senior attorney with the Center for the American Future. Um, and according to his bio, he's uh, prior to joining the foundation, Matt served as the managing attorney for of the Texas Office of the Institute for Justice for about nine years and was later a senior attorney at the Goldwater Institute for almost four years. In any case, here's Matt Miller. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Matt Miller, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for taking the time to see Thank you for having me. So thank you very much. Tell, very good to tell be here. us about yourself. I know you're an attorney and you're listed on the lawsuit <laughs> that we're going to talk about. So maybe you can give us some background and talk about the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Well, thank you, Peter. Uh, yes, I'm a senior attorney at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, we call it TPPF for short. Uh, and TPPF has, has been around a long time, um, over 30 years. And it is primarily a nonprofit uh, public policy group um, that focuses on original research, on policy, on white papers, on advising legislators. Uh, sometimes we propose legislation. Um, but the goal is to promote individual liberty and limited government um, and government within the bounds of both the federal and state constitutions. Now, I work for a branch of TPPF called the Center for the American Future, and we engage in what is known as public interest litigation. And people might be familiar with it. Uh, it, it, was, it originated with the NAACP during the Civil Rights era. Um, the ACLU does a lot of it, uh, the Institute for Justice, uh, and so do we. And, and the purpose of our litigation is to sort out what the government can and can't do within the bounds of the law and the Constitution. So we represent our clients for free. Um, TPPF is a, is a 501c3 organization, and we're funded by, by individual donations. And we don't sue the government for money. Um, we, we sue the government to have a court decide whether a law is constitutional or legal or not. Um, because that is the proper role of the judiciary within our legal system. Well, I noticed, um, obviously, Texas Public Policy Foundation, and the case we're talking about is National Labor Relations Board case, which is a national issue. Um, do you focus primarily on Texas issues, or, or like this NLRB case, do you go nationwide? Uh, we go nationwide. Um, TPPF, a lot, of course, you know, we're, we're based in Texas. We love Texas. We have a Texas focus. Um, but increasingly, we have found that uh, it's, it's necessary to take our message uh, nationwide. It is certainly necessary uh, to, to try to rein in the federal government, um, you know, to, to bring these constitutional litigation cases in order to find the proper contours of federal power. Uh, because we've just seen, um, certainly in the past, you know, 20 years, but really, especially in the past two years, just an extraordinary expansion of federal power and, and the power the government's claiming. Um, so we, uh, these days, do a lot of federal litigation, like the litigation we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, so I, I noticed on the, the website, it's, you know, the, um, the center, the Center for the American Future, it's like the 10th Amendment issues or principles, Right. So it's yeah. There's a lot of that federalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of federalism issues. Um, of course, tied up in that uh, are, are questions of just uh, not not only what the federal government can do relative to the states, um, but the balance of power between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judiciary. Um, you know, which again, increasingly, we're finding ourselves needing to focus on as the executive branch has been making somewhat extraordinary claims of power without 
congressional authorization. So I know when we talked, um, I think it was last week, might have been earlier this week, the, um, you'd mentioned you don't focus on labor law. It just happens that this no. is a constitutional issue. That's correct. That's correct. We are not labor lawyers. Um, we are constitutional litigators, first and foremost. Um, and as a result, you know, I kind of have to learn uh, individual industries on the fly. Uh, but I've done everything from representing uh, street vendors in El Paso to craft brewers. Um, you know, I've represented dentists, uh, nonprofit organizations, Airbnb hosts. And of course, with this lawsuit, we're representing a group of staffing companies uh, that are impacted by this new decision of the uh, 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 general counsel for the NLRB. Right. So let's let's kind of talk about the lawsuit. This was filed a um, couple weeks ago in the United States District but, Court for the Eastern District of Texas. Right. That is correct. And and you mentioned um, so the lawsuit is was it five staffing agencies? You're representing? We do. We represent five Texas staffing companies, including some of the biggest in the state. Um, and the, the claims in a lawsuit are very straightforward. Um, if, if you'd like to get into them right now, I can. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so the, the, the general counsel for the NLRB, who is effectively the chief enforcer for the National Labor Relations Board, um, has issued a new interpretation of what it means for a company to engage in unfair labor practices. So this, this wasn't Congress changing the law. This isn't the NLRB trying to uh, implement new congressional guidance. Uh, this was a unilateral decision by the general counsel to expand the definition of what it means for an employer to engage in unfair labor practices. And I will get to uh, how she changed that definition in a moment. But, of course, the staffing industry is on the front lines of a lot of different issues. Um, you know, they, they both do temporary hires. They do work for hire. Uh, sometimes they do manual labor. They'll do skilled trades, office work. Some of them even uh, do, do attorneys on a temporary basis. But as an industry, they see a lot of trends early on. Um, they're kind of the canary in the coal mine for figuring out where labor issues are headed. And so the, the, this group of Texas staffing agencies was concerned by this new interpretation. Um, and here's what the NLRB has done. Uh, the, the general counsel for the board has, has decided that if an employer uh, makes you attend a meeting on company time, so you're being paid to be there, um, and the employer is providing information to you about unionization efforts, and most employers don't want their employees to unionize, so they'll um, often, you know, give employees reasons why they shouldn't unionize. Um, just by virtue of making you be there and listen to that message, that in and of itself now constitutes, according to her, an unfair labor practice for which the company can be investigated, um, put in front of administrative court, um, and ultimately, uh, the company can endure penalties if they're found to have engaged in these unfair labor practices. And so that is, of course, important to our clients. It's important to a lot of different industries. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has sent a letter to the administration about this. Uh, there have been quite a few news articles about it. And what everybody is concerned about is that employers uh, are going to run afoul of the NLRB simply by talking with their employees about a unionization effort that might be going on.
Um, it has really expanded what it means for something to be an unfair labor practice, and it has put employers in an untenable position. Right. In, you're in the lawsuit, um, and for the listeners, I'll put a link to it under the audio portion, but the lawsuit, although it's 109 pages, um, your main lawsuit or the, the bulk of your portion of it is, what, 10 or 15 pages? Yeah, yeah. The complaint itself is about 10 pages long. Um, most of the rest of those pages come from um, some attachments that we made, which include the letter from the general counsel and then a brief that she submitted um, involving this interpretation. So it's, it's really giving the court everything it needs to kind of understand what's going on with this case. Right. And the, and the brief is the CMEX brief that I think a lot of listeners are familiar with because that was the that's that's right. test case. Uh, that's right. But you laid out a, a, a nice timeline because she came out with the memo, I want to say April 7th. And then that's right. it was like a week later, the CMEX complaint came out. Right. And, you know, so it's kind of like this was in the wind. Well, it's actually probably already on the drawing board when she came out with her original memo. I would think so, unless the lawyers there are able to draft 100-page briefs faster than I can. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but so the um, some of the interesting things I found in reading your lawsuit um, is as you're going through there, you know, she made good on her promise on her memorandum uh, to prosecute employers for requiring employees to attend. That was the CMEX brief. And then mm -hmm. um, you got into the an agency conclusion regarding the applicability of federal law as a final agency action if it marks the end of the mm -hmm. decision-making process. So basically, I think your underlying premise is that they've made the decision and now they're just going to go for broke and prosecute it once the NLRB concurs with them, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, re recall that the, the, the primary claim in this case is a First Amendment claim, um, that employers' speech obviously is being restricted. It is both a speaker-based and a content-based restriction on speech. Um, and the existence of this memo and the existence of this brief itself chills the speech of employers. Um, it chills the speech of these staffing agencies and really employers nationwide, which is why you've seen so much nationwide concern about what's going on. Right. So walk me through the process. You filed it in the uh, Eastern District of Texas. That's right. And if a judge rules on it, finds that your your arguments have merit, they would, what, issue a restraining order, injunction? Uh, yeah, so it would be um, a permanent injunction against the enforcement of this, of this interpretation, uh, which would then send the issue back to Congress, really, um, which is where it belonged to begin with. You know, as you know, I mean, I know you were a labor lawyer for a number of years. This no, is an incredible. I'm not a lawyer. I just sleep at Holiday Inns. <laughs> I've, I've been around labor unions. <laughs> I'm sorry. Years. Forgive me, Peter. That's that's Forgive why I, I that's always right. ask so, the, the lawyers the important questions. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, and, and you know, it, it's an incredibly complicated area of the law. Um, that's why that's why labor and employment lawyers get paid you know big bucks um, is because e even in a place like Texas, which doesn't have kind of the, the constant unionization issues and questions that you might find in other states that are not right-to-work states, uh, once, one, once a unionization issue pops up, you have to bring in a labor and employment lawyer. Um, it, it is simply too perilous to try to navigate all of this without one. 
Um, and that really goes to you know, a lot of what's going on with this case, which is that there's a bevy of a bevy. There's a, there, there's a, a lot of rules in place about what employers can and can't say to their employees about unionization. Um, and underlying all of that is that you can't coerce them. You can't threaten retaliation. You can't threaten to fire them. Um, you can't make them think that bad things will happen to them if they decide to unionize. Um, but up until this new interpretation, you were allowed to give them your side of the story. And we believe that's a fundamental in the, in the First Amendment right of employers, um, just like it is a First Amendment right of unions to communicate a pro-union message to people. Right. Abruzzo's position is that, and I'll put the pro-union hat on for a second, that you, by sure. being an employer, controlling the workplace, paying employees to attend, to use the union term, captive audience meetings, is, in her view, inherently coercive. And where unions, you know, although you've got eight hours a day to, you know, theoretically meet with the employees eight hours a day, not that anybody does or would, um, but unions have to do it on off time, they have to chase employees down, they have to go to their houses, which employers cannot do. But their their view is that the unions are the underdog. And I, I find it fascinating, by the way, this is kind of a side point. Um, as of like two weeks ago, Bloomberg came out and said that unions are winning 77% of all NLRB elections, secret ballot elections on unionization. So wow. which, and that's with, wow. that's with quote, captive audience meetings, right? So the captive audience meetings right. obviously are not that effective, which is kind of, <laughs> it's just a side point for, you know, for why we're going to. Yeah. Well, them. that's a, yeah. I mean, let me just, well, yes. And that, and that's a great point. Um, I hadn't realized it was, it was 77%. Um, obviously that uh, would seem to indicate that unions are not necessarily the underdogs in these cases. Right. Um, but more to the point, you know, that's a very um, expansive and I think, uh, overly legalistic argument to say that, that if an employer makes you attend a meeting on company time, you're being paid to be there for that. You're somehow being coerced or you're captive or, you know, that something un untoward is happening to you. Um, you know, all of us want to be paid to be at work. Otherwise we wouldn't be there. You know, we're not volunteering there. Um, you know, but, but the employers do pay us. And by virtue of paying us, um, you know, they can make us attend meetings. I have to attend meetings all day, every day. Um, you know, employers provide training. They employ, they, they, they provide, you know, information about discrimination and sexual harassment and all sorts of things. Um, and th that's just normal workplace behavior. Um, and one of the things they can talk to you about is a, union, is a unionization effort that might be going on on the work site. And, you know, calling it captive audience takes something normal and makes it sound malicious. Um, and it's just not. You know, the Supreme Court has been clear that while there are significant contours and limitations on what employers can say to employees about unionization, they retain a fundamental constitutional right to talk about it. And the NLRB cannot extinguish that, and they especially cannot extinguish it unilaterally without any input from Congress. Well, and to that point, uh, and you argue this in the lawsuit, um, the guidance memo, memo discriminates on the basis of viewpoint, speaker, and content. And, you know, you reference specifically safety and job training. And and frankly, under OSHA as well as now EEO, if you're if you're mandated to do sexual harassment training, right? You have to sit employees in a room, 
pay mm-hmm. them and you yeah. have to give them safety training or sexual harassment training, et cetera. And, that, and so I guess those would be captive audience meetings, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course you're always free to leave, but that might mean that you're no longer employed by that company. Right. Um, but that's the nature of anything that an employer asks me to do. There's nothing malicious or evil about it. Uh, it's just, you know, the relationship between employers and employees. It's as old as time. Yeah. So um, now where does, do you have a timeline on this, on when it's going to be heard or or when it's going to be decided upon? Yeah, so so from the time everybody was served, which was a couple days after the lawsuit was filed, um, the government has 21 days to either file an answer or to file a motion to dismiss. Um, and then the case proceeds, uh, as federal litigation does, um, you know, what would seem slowly to probably an outsider, but I think will feel relatively quick to the attorneys who are on the case, um, in part because there's not a lot of discovery that will be required for this case. Uh, as with a lot of public interest cases, this is almost a pure question of law. Um, you know, we know what the NLRB has said. We know what their arguments are. Um, we know what they're saying employers can and cannot do. And so the question for the court is, do they have the legal authority to do that? And so I would expect um, after, again, it depends on whether the government files a motion to dismiss, but I would expect things to really start moving and for substantive briefing to be, you know, filed on the case sometime this fall. Uh, and then it'll kind of be up to the court how fast they have oral argument to make a decision on it. So I'd assume the NLRB or, or Abruzzo's office would file a motion to dismiss, right? Um, you know, I never try to speak to the tactics of, of my opposing counsel. Um, every time I do, I've kind of gotten myself in trouble, and so I learned okay. early on not to. Uh, so, but they're they're certainly within their rights to do so, and it would not be uncommon for them to do so. So, um, well, without predicting, as and if they do file a motion dismissed, then the process goes to what? Uh, so there would be briefing on that, uh, hopefully oral argument on that, uh, and then if the court. Uh, grants that motion, then we would be uh, on to appeal the case to the Fifth Circuit. Um, and there would be an appeal fairly quickly on that, on that issue because we will represent these clients all the way to the Supreme Court. Okay. So, you know, I, I don't mean to kind of hem and haw in a lawyerly way on what's going to happen and how long it'll take, but these balls can bounce in a few different directions. Um, and, you know, uh, of course, we have arguments and, and, and we have our, things that are within our control, but the behavior of our opposing counsel, their decisions, and, of course, the decisions of the court are, are largely out of our control. So it just depends on how things go. Now, um, in this type of case, are there, are there um, amicus briefs that are filed with it or no? Um, so traditionally... And I've I've been doing this for about 17 years. Um, Traditionally, amicus briefs would be filed at the appellate stage. Okay. So at the the time this got to the Fifth Circuit, obviously, you know, anybody who who has an interest in it has within their rights to file an amicus brief. Um, Increasingly, we're seeing more trial court amicus briefs, and there's no rules that that prevent them. Um, It was just practice that they usually weren't filed. So I suppose we could see some, but it's more likely that we'll see them at the Fifth Circuit and not at the district court. Okay, so there weren't, obviously, there weren't any filed in this case. No, 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 and we haven't seen any motions to intervene or anything like that. Um, you know, we'll have to see where, you know, where, where things go. 
Interesting. You just raised an uh, interesting point with what would what what do you mean with motions to intervene? Could another third party come into this? Like Let the, try. Uh, yeah. The AFL CIO, Texas AFL CIO, for example. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, people will, will seek to intervene if they feel like the case impacts their interest directly enough. Um, again, it's, it's uncommon, but it's not unheard of. Uh, and, you know, this case is still young. And so we will, again, just have to see what everybody decides and where things go. Now, this, I think this would be in your bellowick in terms of being able to answer this, but hypothetically, could the, um, uh, maybe not. So if, for example, let me use Minnesota AFL-CIO just as an example. Could they file mm -hmm. some sort of suit to ensure that it tries to go through and then you have two competing courts or no? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, for, for instance, uh, just to give you a, a, an example of how that's worked recently, um, you know, we were involved in a challenge to the employer vaccine mandate um, and there were a lot of challenges that were filed with that, of course, and ultimately the Supreme Court struck it down. But there were there were cases that were filed that were essentially friendly cases to the mandate. Um, and what they did was they argued that the mandate hadn't gone far enough. In other words, not only is it not legal, I mean, excuse me, not, not only is it legal, but that the president should have done more with the mandate. And that was a way for them to shoehorn you know, a, a, a friendly piece of litigation into the questions surrounding the mandate. So, so we do see that from time to time. Um, of course, it depends on the individual merits of, of the person who's trying to file that case. But when you have strategic litigation, um, you know, people are very creative. And we saw that in the vaccine mandate context. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking if I should even proffer these types of questions because I don't want to give <laughs> too much ammunition, I guess, to this. But... Um, so you're familiar with the PRO Act, right? The yes. Protecting the Right to Organize Act. There is a, a provision in there that essentially said that employers should have no standing with respect to uh, unit determination issues and other issues. And basically, in addition to trying to ban their speech through captive audience meetings, because I believe captive audience meetings were also banned in the PRO Act. Um, they just didn't want employers to have any standing in the selection of a unit for collective bargaining. And I'm wondering if uh -huh. they were to like take Abruzzo's direction, not literal direction, but the direction she's going in, and if they were to try to backdoor aspects of the PRO Act through state or through courts like this. Does that make sense? I, I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Like if. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. Um, I, I could be honest, Peter, I, I don't want to speculate on that. Um, you know, uh, we, we think we've got our hands full, you know, with what's going on here. Um, and I don't want to kind of like, as you say, yeah, no, that's, put out any kind of a roadmap for anybody. Yeah. Uh, well, I always think in the dark recesses of my mind, what I would do if I were on the other side. So. <laughs> Absolutely. No, um, I, I, I do too. I just, <laughs> I try to keep a lot of that private. Yeah. So, um, what in terms of the um, CMEX briefing that was put out there by the NLRB, are there other avenues in which you folks are exploring? 
or just the captive audience part? We're, we're interested in the captive audience part um, because we think it really goes to, um, you know, the heart of what we're seeing over and over and over again out of Washington, D.C. these days, which is that, you know, you're seeing agencies take existing rules, take existing laws, and take one little term and redefine it in a way that either radically restricts individual liberty or radically expands the power of government. Um, you know, we saw it with the, uh, the eviction moratorium. We saw it with the employer vaccine mandate. And we, and we see it again here, which is that there's nothing new here. There, they, you know, again, Congress hasn't acted. There's not a new law that an agency is struggling to implement or trying to determine how to implement. Um, they have taken an existing rule, definition, in this case, uh, an unfair labor practice, and tried to expand the government's power and restrict the power of these companies um, using existing law. And, I, Peter, I, I, that's not the world we want to live in. Um, you know, we don't want to live in a, in, a, in a world where everybody and every business gets whipsawed with each new administration because they go in and they scour the law and they scour all these statutes and regulations and they find a way to use them to their political advantage. Um, that, that's hard on individuals, it's hard on businesses, and it's not the way that our constitutional system was set up. Um, you know, the law needs to be stable, both for people and for employers and for the government. It's the best way for society to function. And if there needs to be a change in the law, then there are extensive constitutional procedures for Congress to do that. Uh, and, and that is why we have a separation of powers in the first place. And, of course, any tool that a Democratic administration can dream up uh, can be used by a Republican administration. And, again, that whipsaw effect of, you know, now the rule means this, now the rule means that, now the rule means this for four years, um, creates incredible instability and incredible uncertainty for businesses, for workers, for people who live in this society. And I think the past two and a half years have demonstrated that instability and uncertainty isn't good for anybody, and it's hard on all of us. And so uh, fundamentally with these cases, what we're asking courts to do is to enforce the law as it's written, to enforce the rule of law, to enforce the Constitution, and to try to reduce this whipsaw effect that is becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah, I've, I've been having a lot of discussions with a variety of people, mostly through the podcast, that um, you know the pendulum swings either every four or every eight years. And... You know, I've been around labor relations since the Reagan era, so I saw you know the swing when the Clinton board came in, and then it swung back when the Bush two board came in, and then you know then the Obama board came in, and it was a big swing, and now that that momentum has yeah. just like gone back and forth very very far, and to the point where now it's like wow this is the biggest swing I've ever seen in close to forty years. And so it's yeah, and it's hard on people. Well, and from a business standpoint, and just as a kind of a like just an example side note is you know the whole thing about employer handbooks and and the use of you know solicitation policies. Those things have swung back at least three times that I know of. You know, Weingarten rights in the workplace. You know, union, non-union, union again, then non-union. So it's you know, and because I deal with employers a lot and doing training, et cetera. And it's like, okay, here's what it is today, but tomorrow it could be changing. Literally having those discussions right. every week. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah. And, those... and, you know, talk to most 
talk to most of them, and even if it's a rule they don't love, if it can just be consistent and they can implement you know, policies and procedures to, to put it in place and not have to think about it again. So it's not costing them fresh money every four years trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, <laughs> people value that greatly. Right. right. You know, there's a, there's a decision and an injunction issued um, as probably five years ago is in, on the, what's referred to as the persuader regulations. Um, and that was out of the, one of the district courts or one of the courts in Texas. Um, but they did a, a permanent injunction on it. And, you know, I was having a conversation with the Department of Labor recently of, you know, these reports that are required to be filed. I personally don't care if you want me to file a report on recommending coffee flavors or, you know, new candy bar in the snack machine. That's fine. I'll file the reports, but I'd like to know the rules because these rules keep shifting. Yeah. And, you know, they don't want to give you the rules other than, well, it's a case-by-case basis. No, 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 no. You know, if you want me to file on a candy bar, I'll file on a candy bar or coffee flavor. You know, I right. don't really care. Right. But tell me if it's candy bar or coffee. Don't right. make me guess. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, they don't want to give you this, the precise answer. And so they can, I think their purposes so they can nab you. So I'd rather overfile than underfile. But, you know, again, they're, it's shifting. Yeah, no, and, 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 and most people would. Of course, yeah. you know, because nobody, nobody really wants to get tangled up in, legal, in the legal system. Right. You know, they don't want to have an NLRB case opened against them. They don't want to have anybody sue them. You know, one thing I always tell people as a lawyer is if you can avoid a lawsuit, just do it. Even if it means you have to bite your tongue or swallow your pride um, or, or, like you say, fill out an extra form or overcomply. Um, you, you don't want to get tangled up in this because you never know where it leads. Yeah. yeah it's, you know, with the DOL stuff, it's, you know, they're – Civil fines and criminal penalties and all that sort of stuff. The the NLRB starting to try to move in that direction. I don't know that they will, but you know that I think has to go through Congress. But they're certainly trying. Uh, yeah, you would certainly think so. I mean, recall that the employer vaccine mandate had a fifteen thousand dollar penalty attached to it per violation. Right. Um, you know this can the, the, this can become a really serious business really quickly. Yeah, they're. Um, I think is the PRO Act they want to do up to $100,000 fines, I think, per incident. I've got to go back, uh, read it again. But it's, you know, going after the CEOs and whomever else, the officers, the corporations. So. I mean, that'll just ruin, that'll just ruin small business immediately. I mean, even medium-sized businesses. I mean, as you know, most companies can't afford, you know, million-dollar fines. So it's certainly no smaller medium-sized business. Yeah. Well, you know, even depending on the fines, there's a, there's a case that came out of Texas, I believe, that um, some business just got fined as $7 billion. As, uh, <laughs> yeah, as, as uh, Spectrum or Charter Communications, one of their techs went into a house. I don't, I don't mean to laugh, but. Yeah. $7 billion. Yeah, it's jury trial. But it's like, okay, yes, it's a well, major corporation. But a seven billion dollar fine? Sure. Yeah, but it's to send a message, apparently. So I'm assuming they'll appeal. Well, it. I, this I, is just I assume the week. message has been received. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm very much. Well, and then that'll be appealed and, and go ahead. Probably <laughs> reduced, but it was still. That's the you know, who in their right mind would think that's going to keep a company in business? 
And then what happens to the rest of the employees? And this was, it was literally, they hired a bad guy who went out and killed a customer. Mm, geez. Wow. Yeah. And of course, you know, if your employee kills a customer, you've got some liability for that, uh, but not $7 billion worth. Yeah. Um, there's no universe in which that's going to be appropriate. So, right. Well, Matt, what else are you guys up to at the Texas policies or TPPF? I got to remember that. <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, once it sticks, it sticks, um, but, but it can be a little hard to remember. Um, well, so of course, uh, the foundation in general works on all sorts of issues. Um, I've got close to 100 colleagues, uh, and they work on everything from energy policy to education policy to property tax reform in the state of Texas. Um, at the Center for the American Future, uh, we have cases involving everything from offshore wind farms to, like I said, our challenge to the employer vaccine mandate um, to, you know, this case. Uh, we really had, we're engaged in a wide variety of issues and, and the, the purpose of all of them is to promote individual freedom and to promote limited government. So what kind of cases do you personally handle? Not just labor, obviously. No, I handle pretty much any constitutional case um, that comes up for the foundation. Uh, we have four senior attorneys, and, and we, don't, we don't kind of segregate the cases we can work on. Um, any of us can work on anything. So I have spent a good portion of my career working on First Amendment cases. Um, I've been fortunate enough to do that. Uh, but, you know, we will do anything from First Amendment to property rights um, to, you know, administrative overreach. Uh, as you said, Tenth Amendment issues, separation of powers, um, it, anything where the government's claim of authority needs to be tested in court. Um, and to me, this kind of litigation really represents, I, I, and I don't, it's not just because I work in it, I, I work in it because of this, um, but it represents, I think, the best of the American system. Because, you know, unlike legislation, which can be passed under cover of darkness and without explanation, um, unlike executive authority, which, as we know, can be implemented um, very quickly and for all kinds of reasons, uh, when you go to court, you have to explain yourself. <laughs> you have to explain yourself in public. You know, I have to file a, a complaint that lays out what I think the government has done wrong. Um, they get to answer that complaint, explain why they're in the right. Uh, the court receives long and, and deliberate briefing from all sides. And then I think this is crucial. The court then has to explain its decision. And so it's really the most civilized form of, of dispute resolution I can imagine. Um, because you had people making arguments in public, so you're making arguments on the record, um, and then the court has to explain why it did what it did. And that then provides a record of, for, for future generations or for people you know, a week from now or 10 years from now about why things were decided the way they were. Um, and to me, it's really the best of the American system is these kinds of cases. Uh, you know, occasionally I've had uh, government employees say, you know, why, you know, why do you sue us? Why do you make us do all this work? And, and the answer is because we think you didn't have the authority to do what you did. And so we're going to have a court decide it. And that is exactly, I think, how disputes should be resolved between individuals and their government. So did you go to law school wanting to get into constitutional law? Or <laughs> I is did. It, did I you? Did. Okay. Yeah, I did. What, yeah. what drew you yeah. towards that? Um, well, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I've long been interested in politics, um, kind of in the abstract, certainly in the Constitution, in political theory. Um, but I don't like legislative politics, uh, you know, kind of how the sausage gets made in the halls of power. 
um, has never been anything that I've found kind of great uh, comfort with or interest in. Um, I've been a registered lobbyist in Texas. I've been one in Arizona. I've, I've, I've testified before plenty of legislative committees. But fundamentally, um, you know, th- this way of resolving disputes in the courts has always struck me as the best way to resolve something. Um, and so because I was interested in, in, you know, limited government and in individual liberty, uh, I decided to go to law school and then eventually managed to convince the Institute for Justice to hire me. Uh, and then from there, you know, went on and I'm now working for TPPF here at the Center for the American Future. Uh, and it has been, I've been blessed to be able to, to, to pursue this career. I really am. I feel blessed every day. Yeah, it's awesome. There's um, a lot of people don't know that there's actually folks like you out there. (laughs) No, they don't. And I will tell you, you know, sometimes if I call uh, a business and say, hey, you know, I read about this problem you're having uh, and I'd like to represent you and we do it for free. uh, They think it's a scam. Um, you know, that's the first thing they think is. Oh, there's that attorney from Nigeria again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a catch Um, and, and there isn't. Uh, we, we couldn't charge clients for the work we do. Otherwise, we couldn't be a nonprofit. Our clients don't pay a dime for our services. Right. Um, you know, and, and in return, they get legal representation that they might not otherwise be able to afford. You know, you know a lawsuit through trial is, is going to run you $150,000. It just is. Um, and, you know, and then an appeal tax on another $100,000. And you know, we were talking about you know, small and medium businesses. A lot of them just can't afford that. So they just kind of take it. And if yeah. you talk to these staffing companies, they'll say, you know, we just, we have rights too. You know, we're, we're allowed to stick up for ourselves. That's okay. That's how the system's supposed to work. Well, and, you know, when you've got a, I don't know how large the staffing companies are. I saw one of them in like 14 states, but, you know, they still probably run on fairly tight profit margins. But if, oh, you know, yeah. if you've got somebody like uh-huh. you folks out there and, you know, you get donations and then that helps defray the costs and you guys take a case up like this and it, you wind up helping the small business person, you know, the mom and pops out there just by taking these cases on behalf of others. It's, Absolutely you know, we do. You know, it, when we are victorious in this, it, it, will, it will benefit all employers. Um, you know, these staffing companies just decided to be the ones to step up and put their names on the line for it. Uh, and we're extremely grateful that they did. Uh, you know, we, we can't file cases without clients, um, you know, and e- even though we do it for free and we do everything we can to protect our clients, it's, it's always a big deal to sue somebody, and it's always a big deal to sue the federal government. And so we are grateful that we have these companies that are willing to step up and defend their rights and defend, you know, the individual liberty of everybody. Yeah, and there's a couple other groups like yourselves out there, but not that many. There are. And yeah, I know, yeah, they're all, um, you know, the number get, of states have, I'm sorry, Peter, go ahead. You, you guys probably get arrows shot your way all the time. I'm assuming. We do. Yeah. And that, and, and that's part of our job, um, you know, is to take those arrows and that's true for a lot of lawyers. I mean, you know, that is true even, you know, for private attorneys is that hopefully they are taking the arrows for their clients because it is a fraught thing to be in a lawsuit. It's a fraught thing to, to, you know, kind of be staring down the, the, governmental authority. It's a fraught thing to be sued in court. And I would hope that all lawyers would take those arrows for their clients because the, the clients usually aren't in a position either financially or um, even emotionally to kind of deal with the stress of all that. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you're having to finance it yourself, you're looking at basically opening up your wallet for however long. So. Yeah. And, and then every decision, you know, do we appeal? 
you know, do we file this pretrial motion? Do we depose this person? Um, you know, every decision has a financial cost attached to it. And it gets expensive in a hurry. Um, you know, I worked in big law before I went to work um, in public interest law. I worked there for about for a few years. And uh, even large companies um, oftentimes will have to make unpleasant decisions just because something is costing too much. Whereas, you know, government lawyers, I know they pay their lawyers, but they're, you know, they're going to get their salary whether they're defending this case or not. Um, they're not getting billed by the hour for their lawyers. Um, you know, they've got a team of staff attorneys and government attorneys to defend these cases. In the case of the federal government, they have oftentimes a Department of Justice. Uh, and that's okay. You know, that's how it's supposed to be. Um, but but we, are, we are happy that we are able to, to represent these clients when they might not otherwise be able to afford representation. So let me ask you in a case like not necessarily the NLRB one, but where you folks are taking on clients do you make all the legal decisions in terms of, okay, we need to appeal this or we need to file that brief or whatever, or do you, do the clients themselves, even though they're not paying you, do they have a say in it? Um, so the clients do have a say, um, you know, a, a lot of that work is done up front. A lot of that work is done by discussing with them kind of our strategy, why we're in this, um, you know, what, what we as an organization hope to achieve, um, and, you know, the arguments we'll be making on the client's behalf. And so if you do that up front and you find alignment up front, um, then, then throughout the case, there's, the, the clients will oftentimes just hand off the ball to you. They'll say, hey, we trust you, make, you know, make a good decision. Um, and, and, and small decisions, you know, do we use this expert? Do we do this deposition? Uh, the lawyers make, um, and, and that's true in, in almost all cases. Big decisions, do we file this appeal? Um, do we go for a preliminary injunction? Uh, those kinds of decisions require client input, and, and, and we always give that. Um, and even though we are public interest lawyers and we have a public interest objective, uh, we're lawyers first and foremost. And so protecting the client, you know, re respecting that fiduciary duty and doing what's in the client's best interest ultimately comes first. Now, in a case like the one before the NLRB, obviously their names are out there. Um, and, mm -hmm. and irrespective of this particular case, but when you take on a client, you're fighting the government. Obviously, there's interests on the other side. In LRB case, you'd have unions on the other side. Mm -hmm. If it's whatever other type of case, do they get? Do they ever get targeted by the other side? Picketing, uh, protests, no. stuff like that. Okay. No, no, uh, I, I've never had that in one of my cases. Um, the other thing that clients are sometimes. Uh, concerned about is, is the government retaliating against them? You know, a few years back, I represented a group of craft brewers in Texas. And kind of like with the NLRB, um, alcohol is heavily regulated. Um, and it's heavily regulated in Texas um, by the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. And they were concerned, you know, is TABC going to, you know, audit me or come and inspect me or investigate me or, or retaliate against me for, for doing this? Um, and I, I've just never seen it. You know, I've done dozens and dozens of cases, and I understand the concern. I really do. But, but thankfully, I've never seen it. And, and, and I think some of that comes down to that we're not accusing somebody of malfeasance or misfeasance. We're not seeking money. You know, we're not trying to get somebody to lose their job. Uh, it really is a disagreement about the, 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 the scope of the government's authority to do something or not. And I think government lawyers... Um, fundamentally understand that, you know, they're repeat players in this just like we are. 
Uh, it's a bit of a gentleman's disagreement where we go to you know, go into court and ask the court to decide the issue. And so despite the fact that people are understandably concerned, that doesn't bear itself out in real life, thankfully. Well, you know, there, and actually this involved Texas. I don't think you guys were involved with this, but I remember a organization probably about 10 years ago. It was after the 2010 midterm elections. And there's an organization, I think it was True the Vote, I think they're out of Houston, but they're, they're getting like IRS audits and all kinds of stuff. Totally different area of law, but yeah. that's why I was kind of curious if they, you know, unions would obviously have a Yeah, no, and this one, but. Sure they would. Sure they would. And, but, you know, again, you know, I was talking earlier that that's not the world we want to live in. Um, no matter who is in power, the, the the authority of government shouldn't be weaponized in that way. You know, you shouldn't be getting audited just because your political or opponents are in power. Um, you know, there are, there are ways to resolve these disputes in a civilized manner. And that's what you do when you go to court. Um, and people should leave it at that. Um, you know, if there is an increase in that, I haven't seen it. And if it does happen, it is tremendously unfortunate. And I would hope that both sides would work to deescalate that kind of behavior. Yeah. I'm not sure we're seeing the deescalation as opposed to the escalation across yeah, right now, but it's unfortunate. I know it is unfortunate. It really is because there are mechanisms in place to do this. Well, and it's, you know, the whole thing with the, just the national labor relations board and this whole free speech argument, it's, you know, I've always argued because I've been around it for so long that, you know, if unions were just honest with employees when they're going to unionize them, there wouldn't be, need to be captive audience meetings or, you know, guys like union busters and stuff like that. You wouldn't need it. Just, Union organizers are traditionally not that honest with employees. So if there were, you know, put in a truth, truth of union organizing act, something like that. <laughs> Settle it all. Well, yeah, you know, you know, we, we live in an adversarial system um, where each side gets to make its best arguments and then it's up to the listener to decide who to believe. Um, you know, but, but what we know you can't do is just unilaterally decide that one side doesn't get to present its arguments. Right. That's just fundamentally un-American. Well, and I, I think I saw in your, in the suit somewhere in there was referencing, you know, just an employer giving information about the election process would potentially violate Abruzzo's ban on meetings with employees, which is that's yeah, sure what yeah, yeah. That's sure what her memo says. Yeah, I mean her so, memo says employers routinely hold mandatory meetings. Uh, and that these meetings inherently involve an unlawful threat that employees will be disciplined or suffer other reprisals. So, yeah, that is absolutely her argument. Yeah. As, you know, vast majority of, of the campaigns I've been involved in, the very first meeting is talking about the National Labor Relations Act. It's literally handing out copies oh, yeah. of the, the act. You know, because that's what sure. I'm saying from the union organizers. They don't tell the employees about the process. And that's usually what a campaign is all about is just you're bringing employees facts. And that's, you know, yeah. under Abruzzo, she doesn't want that. <laughs> Which apparently that, not. That in and of, of itself just begs a whole nother conversation. But it ain't. Well, case. it does. You know, you know but, the, but the Constitution protects everybody's right to convey truthful information to each other. There's just no question about that. Um, you know, so we're confident on the merits of this case uh, that we're going to win this one. And we're looking forward to the day we do so. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch because it, it does shift. Well, it's already starting to shift 
what's happening on the ground, so to speak, across the United States. So to give you an example, uh, because we track petitions and charges that are filed at the National Labor Relations mm -hmm. Board, there's been several unfair mm -hmm. labor practice charges filed against employers for the mere holding of meetings. So given that sure. I've asked this question of a couple attorneys, but my assumption is if the NLRB rules in Abruzzo's favor on the CMEX case, the unions are already, for lack of a better term, I don't want to say plotting, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, they've mm -hmm. lined up these cases so that, and I think one of them's Apple and there's a uh, Starbucks, maybe Amazon, just on the, not the content necessarily, just the mere holding of the meetings. And mm -hmm. so they'll have these in the pipeline. So as and if the NLRB rules with a Bruzo, they'll already have these employers out there and then they can go for what's called a bargaining order in order the employers to bargain irrespective of how the union with irrespective of the outcome of the election, because right. it'll be seen as, you know, now the joy silk doctrine yeah. enters into it and all that card check basically. Well, I mean, you know, unions are smart. They have smart, they have smart attorneys. Um, and of course they have a strategy. Um, you know, they've been doing this for a long time and, and I would be surprised if they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. This is, it's further, uh, I'll just say further to the left than I've seen it in a very, very long time, if ever. But. Yeah. Well, I think we're seeing that in a lot of areas. Um, so we'll yeah. have to get courts to step in and, you know, establish some guardrails. Yeah. Well, Matt Miller, where can I send people to, I can post the uh, links to the TPPF and uh, you want your bio on there? My bio is on there, um, but more importantly, you can find out about all the great work that TPPF does at texaspolicy.com. This is one word, texaspolicy.com. Uh, and Peter, I very much appreciate you taking the time this evening to talk with me. It's been a great conversation and I hope it's been beneficial to your listeners. Well, I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for coming on. You bet. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Matt Miller, Senior Attorney with the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Center for the American Future, talking about the case against the National Labor Relations Board and the restriction on First Amendment rights. As you probably can guess, that's a very important case that's going to be um, written about for a while. As and when they have an update, I'm hoping to have him back on. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for listening. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.